Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Veterans Day, and Derek Vreeland, author of By the Way, is going to join us. And finally, we're going to talk about making pastors uncool again. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you join us. And Ian, I think uh, that could, that's what we could call the show, um, The Common Good, Making Pastors Uncool Again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you noticed, Brian, I, uh, I posted that to our page a few days ago, and uh-huh. a buddy of mine, somebody commented, <laughs> said something like, is it possible for Ian to get any less cool as it is or something? <laughs> I didn't see that at oh, all. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That was like within five minutes of posting it. <laughs> That's really funny. Ian and I saw each other for like the first time in a couple of months today. I got, I, I, can I say this on the air, man? It was pleasant. It was nice to spend some time with you today. What part of that and, was controversial? Uh, <laughs> Am I allowed to say uh, on air? Not was... allowed to, but like, is that, do people care? Do people care? But oh, no, they definitely doing, don't care. They don't care. Ever sure. since COVID, you and I have been... Uh, just doing this show from our respective homes, but we had a meeting up at the studio today. So it was like old times. It was really mm. nice to see you again. So Likewise. Uh, people would like to know that you look exactly the same and I probably do as well. <laughs> well, I was wearing a hazmat suit, so it was probably hard to tell. But... Yes, you rolled in in that bubble. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard, hard to see through all those layers of plastic. Absolutely. Well, uh, later in the show, as is our custom, Ian will tell us what some of the random holidays are today. But today is actually an important day. Today is Veterans Day. Uh, And I thought it would be appropriate for us to reflect and to talk a little bit about Veterans Day. Uh, And and I I learned today, kind of doing a little bit of research, that the history of Veterans Day, the reason that Veterans Day is November the 11th every year, uh, is because at the end of World War One, it officially ended with the Treaty of Versailles, signed on June 29th. However, fighting ceased seven months earlier when an armistice between the Allied nations and Germany went into the effect on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Uh, that would be November the 11th, and that's why we celebrate Veterans Day. It's changed days throughout the year, but then it got solidified in the 70s as November 11th for Veterans Day. So before we reflect upon that, did you know any of that history about Veterans Day? I knew a a little bit of it, not to um, not to high five homeschool education all around the world, but uh, (laughs) we're all doing homeschool education right now. (laughs) That's very, very true. Both. Yeah, both my my uh, grandfathers are veterans. And I feel like this is a Mm. uh, an aspect of of history that was I'm assuming that's where I learned it from. I don't know. I I, yeah. I certainly it's weird when you look back on, you know, your your childhood trying to recall, like even talking with you about the stuff that your kids are learning, thinking, I don't think I learned that when I was there. Yeah. Who knows? But, yeah, I, I was aware of uh, at least at least some of that. Yeah. So uh, and by the way, maybe we'll put up on our Facebook page. You shared just a, a crazy piece of like historical sound of when the when the gun stopped right at 11 o'clock. And here we read. 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month. That was the start of the armistice. And here's what I do want to talk about. Uh, Veterans Day for me, I remember growing up, and I don't take pride in saying this, but it was always like, do I get it off of school, right? Like it was just kind of not a huge holiday and just, uh, I don't really know what it is. What do we celebrate? But the, the older you get and the more you think about it, things like Veterans Day, Memorial Day, and the like are, are important to recognize. So let me start here. Uh, not do you think Veterans Day is important, but why is it important for us to take time 
uh, to remember and honor specifically our veterans. And then I want to talk about just the importance of remembering in general. But Veterans Day in particular, uh, why do you think it's an important day for us as a nation? I mean, I think it's it's important for a lot of reasons. Um, and I, it's been interesting even scouring the Internet today because, you know, a number of my friends are are pacifists. They're very anti-war. Um, I think I think a lot of people actually are anti-war. I think right that there is a difference between between being a pacifist and anti-war. But um, there there is in the United States at least, which is my only experience, a a certain level of mutual respect, maybe not quite reverence, but at least an understanding that even even though maybe philosophically, ethically, this is a, this is the kind of thing like I you know my buddy. Uh, Monty was, um, he, he was in the U S army and I remember years ago, he said something like, I think it was actually on Memorial day, but he said on Memorial day, one of the greatest gifts that we could give to the children of those who gave everything is a world without the need for war. Mm-hmm. And I always, that always really resonated. There's someone who's actually seen things that I've never seen. Um, whose conviction is, yeah, going forward, one of the best ways maybe to, to honor people who have seen the types of things I've seen is to work toward a world where that's never the case ever again, you know, and yeah. plenty of people yeah. accuse him of being, you know, some hippie or some pacifist, whatever, mm-hmm. like Monty's wonderfully difficult to nail down in that regard, which I've always appreciated about him. Um, but that's part of why I think it's significant to, to, to recognize and respect um, in whatever way that we feel our conscience will allow us to, you know, people who, have given their lives in this way or given their lives to service in this way or years of their lives or some aspect of their lives. You know, I, th- I just think that, um, yeah, yeah, that, that is significant in my mind, no matter how you slice it or wherever you land, uh, theologically, philosophically, I think it's, I think it's still important. This article at va.gov uh, that kind of gives the history of veterans day, uh, ends this way. It's a, it's a celebration to honor America's veterans for their patriotism, love of country, and willingness to serve and sacrifice for the common good. And uh, I think that's a, that sums it up. With a minute or two, like the, I should say, the two minutes we have left, uh, talk about, if you would, just the importance of remembering. Because so much of our life is forward-facing. What am I doing tomorrow, the next hour, in a month, in a year? Uh, what's the importance for us, whether you've served or not served? This isn't about veterans, but just in general, the importance of looking back, the importance of remembering and honoring and learning from, and, and just this importance of remembering. You know, I, I think without without overselling it, I mean, the the Bible is is filled with examples of remembering, of God calling his people to remember. You know, and we talk about this yeah. every 9-11. We talk about never forgetting. We talk about um, the the significance. I mean, again, this is probably not great exegesis, but one one of the characteristics that Jesus gives of the Holy Spirit before he ascends, he says, I'm going to send the advocate who will be with you and will remind you of the things that I taught you. There's a, mm-hmm. a component to the characteristic of the Holy Spirit when so much of our instinct is like new revelation or mm-hmm. a new perspective or new insight or new interpretation. You know, we want new and shiny and fast and current and and I don't think those are in and of themselves bad, but I think on days like today and, and maybe just in general, the posture of a Christ follower, I think it might be helpful for us to remember that one of the things that Jesus told us the Holy Spirit would do is to tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, let's not forget this thing back here. You 
you used to know, but you've forgotten. You've moved on. This remembering piece to me is, is in a lot of ways, it's almost a discipleship component. It's a formation aspect and and we can be prone to a certain level of spiritual amnesia where we you know we forget god's goodness his provision or in this case honoring today the people uh who have served in you know for many of us ways that we can't even fathom and uh Mm -hmm. that temptation to forget is something that i do take comfort in knowing that god seems to to know that we'll be prone to forgetfulness and yet all the same instructs us to keep remembering and i I think that that's i think that's important Yep. Well put. Well put. So much of my life, I know, and all of our lives is just looking forward. Yeah. Uh, and we definitely miss an, an important aspect of life when we're not remembering and learning and looking back. So we honor and we thank any of you out there who are veterans. Happy Veterans Day. And uh, I hope that you feel honored today. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Derek Vreeland, discipleship pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph's, Missouri, and the author of a book we're going to talk to him about called By the Way. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us uh, on a beautiful sunny day here in the Chicagoland area. And we are thrilled uh, to be joined on the phone from the state of Missouri by Derek Vreeland. Derek is the discipleship pastor of Word of Life Church and also author of a book, called By the Way. Derek, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Just for the sake of our audience, so they can get to know you a little bit, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Well, as you said, I'm a discipleship pastor and author and writer here in Northwest Missouri, just north of Kansas City, just north of the Super Bowl reigning champion, (laughs) Kansas City Chiefs. So I tell people I belong to two kingdoms. I belong to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Chiefs, kingdom nation. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Well, it looks like we're going to have to end the interview there, Derek. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Now, Derek, you you wrote a book called By the Way, which I think is phenomenal. We're actually in a series at our church right now called This is the Way, which everyone thinks is a Mandalorian reference, which it it sort of is. But one of the things that Brian and I hear often on the show, because we're pastors, when when we delve into certain topics, sometimes the pushback is, why don't you guys are pastors? Why don't you just talk about the gospel? Just talk about the gospel. And I'm, I'm often asking, well, how do you define that? And the most yeah. common response is, oh, I I asked Jesus into my heart, asked Him to forgive me of my sins. And sure. your book, in a lot of ways, kind of goes after that notion, maybe not being the full picture of what the gospel actually is. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Sure. In the book, I really want to reshape um, uh, what the gospel is. I devote an entire chapter call it story, the way of the gospel. But in a sense, the whole book is is built on this premise that in American evangelicalism, we tend to misunderstand what the gospel is and what the experience of salvation is. Hmm. So many of us that grew up in evangelicalism grew up in the shadow of Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we appreciate Billy Graham and we thank God uh, for the ministry and the legacy of Billy Graham, but the American church, particularly American evangelicalism, has picked up really what I call Billy Graham style evangelism, where the gospel message is very individual and very personalized and very much uh, hinges on an individual making a decision about what they believe 
uh, about certain propositions related to Jesus. And yes, cross and resurrection are in there, but the, the driving impetus is for people to make a decision. So you very often hear people speak about experiencing salvation in response to the gospel, asking Jesus into their heart, um, you know, praying a prayer, receiving forgiveness so they can go to heaven when they die. And certainly those are all elements to both the gospel message and our experience of salvation, but it's much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, I really want us just to go back to Jesus and hear afresh what Jesus calls us to do. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. He doesn't say go into all the world and get people saved. He doesn't say go into all the world and get people to have a favorable opinion of me. He doesn't say go into all the world and get people to ask me into their heart. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. So the book is really trying to root us in what Jesus has called us to do. You, you call non-discipleship uh, the elephant in the room, uh, the, the elephant in the church. Could you expand on how non-discipleship is the elephant in the room? Well, that's actually Dallas Willard. So oh, okay. I, I will I will give props to the great <laughs> Dallas Willard in Divine Conspiracy um, is, is where that line is found. But, but Willard's ministry was really shaped about addressing the elephant. Um, but from what I've seen, um, I agree. Uh, I mean, Willard wrote that so long ago, but I still see it very present mm -hmm. that we typically, and again, I'm speaking in my own context, sort of the, the evangelical or even post-evangelical world. In, in my context, it is still a bit of the elephant because here's Jesus with this great commission, and yet we tend to spend a lot of energy in attraction and in buildings and in organizational flowcharts. And, and all of those things are a part, I understand, of church life. But we seem to spin our wheels over and over with a very uh, you know, showy presentational style mm -hmm. of, of worship. I think particularly with COVID and moving online, mm -hmm. people want to put a lot of resources into the the, the broadcast of Sunday morning, and yet discipleship gets pushed to the side. It becomes this department within the church for, you know, the super spiritual people. They go through those classes or they're in those small groups. Um, but I think it should be front and center because it's what Jesus has called us to do. I, I think one of the posts that I got the most pushback from when COVID was really starting to hit, I said something like, now would be a good time to focus more on equipping than entertaining, I think was the language I used. And I, I just got, got so much pushback for that. And people, you know, in a lot of ways made cases for the show that you were just talking about. Like, well, that's how you that's how you get them in the door. And then and then we focus on discipleship, which is probably a whole other discussion. Why, why do you think in the West in particular? And I, I kind of single out the West because it feels like a lot of our Eastern brothers and sisters don't have nearly the same problem. Why are we so attracted to either language around converts salvation by simply, you know, intellectual belief or kind of the show that is, is so often what we see in Western American Christianity. A part of it is we are, we have been thoroughly secularized. Mm -hmm. um, the flood waters of secularism, which has flooded Western Europe uh, has hit our shores and we are all, myself included, thoroughly secular. Mm -hmm. 
And within secularism, you know, sort of post-enlightenment secularism, the, the autonomous thinking self, the individual is elevated to what is supreme, receives supreme value. And that cultural change within North America and, you know, in our context here in the U.S. Um, has has shaped the people that sit in the pews or the chairs in our churches. And so we are so thoroughly secular, we don't even know how secular we are. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that emphasis on the individual right behind individualism is that consumerism that's always lurking in the shadows um, has reshaped values for our church members. So they are evaluating church and church services um, simply by those cultural values that have shaped them. Yeah. And Derek, what's the result? So people could kind of grasp the gravity of this. What's the result when we as churches ignore discipleship and formation altogether? We produce Christians um, that are shallow. And Mm -hmm. so when real crises and real pressure hits, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're we're like those um, those plants that grow up in the parable of the sower. We grow up quickly, but with no root, we wither away. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're, we're seeing that, I think, everywhere when the pressure's on without the root of discipleship, we wither. Mm -hmm. Uh, as we talk about discipleship and the church and, and kind of doing that work, I'm curious, uh, maybe in your own experience, in your own church, or or maybe more on a grand scale, how do you feel like COVID and, and all the restrictions have maybe hurt discipleship and made it uh, made us have to rethink it right now the way we do it in churches? COVID has been awful. Um, there was a, I'm pretty sure it was a Lifeway research article that came out that said, I want to say it was 58%. It was the majority of pastors that were surveyed have major concerns about how COVID is shaping and reshaping the church. I know that there's smaller congregations that might not have the resources to be online. Um, they not survive COVID. And so it, it's been a huge challenge. The biggest challenge for discipleship um, that we have been presented with is the, the loss of connectivity in community. So discipleship is intensively communal. Mm. Um, what separates simply education from discipleship is life on life, flesh and blood on flesh and blood connections. I mean, Jesus, when he was uh, you know, preaching the gospel and healing the sick and, and teaching about the kingdom of God, did so on purpose, in a gathering of 12 people, the disciples he brought together in community. And so COVID has presented these challenges where, yes, we have technology. Yes, we have FaceTime and texting and email and Zoom and Facebook video. But I've always been very, very hesitant because I have major concerns about how digital technology is is perhaps harming our souls. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of us, myself included, have had to say, okay, we have this obstacle um, of isolation. How can that become an opportunity? Mm. And so for me as a pastor, I really made a major shift in my approach to where at one time, you know, I thought online church was was something made up, like this is not anything I want to be a part of, 
to where now we just two weeks ago um, launched a new initiative in our church where we are cultivating an online congregation. And we are looking at these obstacles as opportunities. How can we create Zoom small groups and how can we virtually connect with people? And uh, it's, it is a great opportunity, but it does require us to, to rethink a bit. What does it look like to do discipleship using digital tools right. during this uh, time of the home quarantine? And the other topic that Brian and I seem to have tackled a number of times this last year in this most bizarre upside down of years is the topic of justice. It tends to be the most controversial topic that we ever tackle on the show. And you actually yes. wrote a, a, an article uh, for Missio Alliance uh, about a year or so ago, addressing the elephant in the church, seven necessary components of integrated discipleship, which is what we've been talking about. Your seventh one includes justice, but I've, I've never actually seen it phrased quite this way. Your, your seventh is inward community and outward justice. I, I'd love to know, one, why in your mind are those two things connected? And maybe what is what does biblical justice look like right now in your mind? Well, they're connected, but there's tension between a focus on imagining the church as a tight-knit community, a household, a family. Right. There's tension between understanding that, which is what we've talked about, right? That's where discipleship happens. The, the, the counterbalance to that is justice, which my understanding of biblical justice is that justice is God's work of setting right a world gone wrong. So justice, it's funny, I, I for a long time had a very cartoonish image of justice in terms of law enforcement, that, well, justice is when the good guys catch the bad guys and throw the bad guys in jail. Right. Um, but justice is a deeply biblical word that is about God's activity of bringing restoration to those who are oppressed. To those who have been on the 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 underside of society, hmm. and so if this is the work of God, I, I believe that justice is the mission of God in the world, and therefore it's the church's task to make disciples fit for that mission. Hmm. In other words, we are formed as a gathered people in community, but then God is scattering us that we might be agents of peace, that we might be peacemakers, that we might be the justified justice bringers into our neighborhood. And it is um, it, it is controversial because, as I've experienced as a pastor, different people have different passions when it comes to justice, yeah. or people's heart are drawn to different justice issues. And so sometimes that can be in... in um, in conflict, for example, there are Christians who feel very passionate about the injustice of abortion and and the lives of the unborn. And I think to advocate for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn, I think that's a part of God's justice. Mm -hmm. But there are other people who are drawn to injustices of, of poverty or racial inequality and systemic racism. And so sometimes those Christians can kind of argue with each other, but I see it sort of as the beauty of the body of Christ, that God is going to put within us a heart to advocate for a certain kind of justice in the world. And as long as all of us are being obedient to how God is leading us, we together as the church can begin to bring God's love 
and God's benevolent care into these different justice issues. Mm, that's great. Uh, before we close out, I want to give you an opportunity to, to expand on something you said earlier, and that's the danger of when we view Christianity as uh, I'm just supposed to ask God into my heart, right? A lot of us grew up with that, right? right? When did I ask Jesus into my heart? Could you expand? I know you touched on it earlier, but could you expand on the danger of that and what you mean when you say that's not really the heart of the gospel? Well, for one, it's it's not a biblical language, and I mm-hmm. think the church historically goes off the rails when we stretch too far from the biblical narrative. But the danger is it makes it all individual and personal, mm-hmm. and it reduces Christianity down to a, a Jesus and me spirituality. And once that becomes the heart, then you lose the inward community that you need And you also lose that impulse towards justice, Hmm. forgetting that God so loved the world. It was God's desire to save the whole world and not just you. So that's the danger I see there. Uh, Derek, we're really grateful for the time you've spent with us. Before we uh, close out this interview, I'd love for you to share with people where they can read more of your stuff, where they can find your book, maybe social media. Give everything, all the places (laughs) people can find you. Well, you got to spell my name right. So (laughs) you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, my own website at Derek Vreeland, which is D-E-R-E-K, last name V like Victor, R-E-E-L-A-N-D. You can find links to books and articles and sermons and videos. It's all out there. That's awesome. Derek, we really appreciate your time. Again, the name of the book is By the Way. And Derek is also the discipleship pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Derek, thanks so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. We appreciate it. I enjoyed it, guys. Uh, You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today uh, on this uh, beautiful Wednesday afternoon. We're glad to be together today. Uh, as we've talked about many times uh, before, Ian and I are both pastors. Uh, what? And uh, <laughs> at least for now, until that last segment goes out. <laughs> uh, and, and with that in mind, uh, we found this. I think you put this up on our Facebook page earlier this week. Mm-hmm. John L. Cooper, who you told me, lead singer of Skillet. Is that right? <laughs> you sound so unconfident that in that. Yes, that's right. I that's am right. unconfident there. Okay. Skillet, Christian <laughs> ska band, correct? Not ska, no, sir. How are would you, you classify? Are you, be, that? are you being serious? I am. I thought that's that thought that's when they came around. No, they are not ska at all. In fact, I will say this: cards on the table. Uh, I was a real big fan of their first self-titled album. Um, it was like a grungy garage rock kind of. They're definitely not that anymore. Uh, and they've okay. sort of veered. They did what did some more digital stuff for a while, and then. They kind of fit in that, you know, the band Evanescence. They're sort of kind of in that kind of vibe. Our uh, musician producer is probably pulling his hair out thinking this is the worst <laughs> way to describe this band. But they're sort of, yeah, they're sort of just I'm sorry. I was, I was dying. <laughs> Christian yeah. Scott you know, band? No. So, so let, me, let me defend myself a little bit here. I wasn't saying that from any music I remember of Skillet at all. I was just lumping them with kind of the time frame I remember them. So, like, if, if I heard them, I would know they're not ska. But okay, well. if you asked me to name a Skillet song, I could not do so. So, anyway, <laughs> with that rousing, <laughs> John Cooper, their lead singer, he went on Facebook uh, a couple of days ago, November the 6th, 
and posted something pretty provocative. It says this, make pastors uncool again. And John Check. Cooper, he, uh, he, <laughs> we, we are successful. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> yeah. The MPUA hats. We'll wear those making pastors uncool again. Oh, and so, gosh. uh, he he will he will post provocative stuff. Uh, he'll push back on people often online. But uh, we did find this interesting, and I think he's probably writing this a little bit from all the stuff we see going on around with some pastors having moral failures and other things. Yeah. And so I thought we'd just read. You could read this whole post, and uh, and then we'll see what we think about it. Make pastors uncool again. Why don't you read this for us? It it is worth noting too. Uh, my buddy Kevin commented within seconds like i don't know that ian could be any less cool than he than he currently is so we seem to be doing a great job of that already but uh yeah success right we've arrived uh make pastors uncool again he writes pastors shouldn't be rock stars yeah i said it a rock star promotes himself builds his brand and entertains people it's his job a pastor is supposed to lay his life down for his sheep he serves he protects and he equips the saints for the work of ministry ephesians 4 so why does it seem like many of our celebrity pastors are obsessively self-promoting, building their own brands, and protecting themselves by never preaching or teaching anything that would put them in Twitter prison? Yes, it's sad and devastating to watch our leaders fall into sin, but when the foundation is built so poorly, it shouldn't be all that surprising. Many Christians have been saying this for years, and it's past time that I join them. I'm tired of celebrity pastors. Pastors aren't supposed to be cool. They're not supposed to be fashion trendsetters. We are all called to decrease that Christ would increase both in our hearts and in our lives. That's John 3.30. His fame should be known, not ours. Celebrity pastors, get out of the way. You're hogging the spotlight by making yourself the story. Instead, you should be taking some hits on the front lines by stating clearly what God commands. Celebrity pastors seldom do this. Instead, most of what we hear is rhetorical gobbledygook, veiled mysticism and repackaged new ways movement self-help promotion material disguised as the work of the spirit my pastor helped change my life in college really who exactly he remains faceless nameless and will never get the adoration of the world because his desire was for jesus to have all the glory he taught me how to read and understand the bible he took my midnight phone calls he instigated the necessary but uncomfortable conversations he taught me the importance of sexual purity and he even taught me how to paint a house and balance a checkbook. It almost sounds more like being a father, doesn't it? Working, serving, teaching your kids, and never expecting a thank you or a hand clap is what pastoring is all about. Pastors, I am thankful for you. Many are serving faithfully, and you will be rewarded by God. But for the pastors who are receiving their reward on earth, I have a request for you. Please stop looking for adoration from the world. We don't need you to look awesome. He needs you to be fearless and preach the gospel according to the unchanging authoritative word of God. Stop finding clever ways to evade questions. You know the ones, God's command about sexual morality, God's authority structure in the church and at home, biblical justice instead of the religion of modern social justice. Answer them and answer them clearly for heaven's sake. Please stop trying to find a new way to explain the perceived inconvenient truths of God's word. You ought to love what he loves and hate what he hates. This used to be a prerequisite for church leadership. Today, it's deemed radical and even bigoted. Playtime is over. A spiritual battle is raging, and the field is full of wimps and boys who have never picked up a sword because it just feels mean. We need generals and leaders who don't care about their brand, their look, their likes, or making allegiances with the world. In short, it's time to make pastors uncool again. All right, Brian, what so do you that's think? John. That's John Cooper. There's things I would pick apart in that where um, 
but but I the overall concept of the concept of the celebrity pastor, and you and I are on the other side, right? We are pastors, and and I would tell people the draw to be uh, known and the draw to be um, liked a lot and the draw to be in the spotlight is uh, is really heavy uh, on our side. And and so I think as a pastor, I hear this and I'm like, yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and I do think that there's something uh, important about um, not, uh, when did this even start, right? Where we made the pastor a celebrity or that was even a thing. And then we're surprised when the celebrity pastor falls. So I don't think celebrity pastors are all uh, weak and not willing to answer questions and not this. Like I would, I would differ from him on that, but just the concept of the celebrity pastor, I think is something we need to get rid of as much as we can in evangelicalism right now. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if that's totally possible. I, I am curious I how, how you would go about that. I, Cause I like you, there's, there's parts of this I agree with and certainly parts that I, I wouldn't, I think that there's yep. some, there's some false dichotomies here. There's probably some, some straw men like, yeah, there certainly are times for a, you know, quote unquote, grab the sword moment. There's also mm-hmm. a great need for more pastors to be in touch with their own wounds and their own. And that's, yeah. you know, I mean, that's a different kind of battle, of course, obviously. So yeah. he's he's coming from a very particular perspective. It is always for me. There's a, a certain sense, almost hubris when it's like ah, the Bible clearly says this. You're like, well, Agreed. Christians all over the world have disagreed for centuries about what this phrase or that. You know, what I mean, it's not. Just because it like seems really clear to you and your perspective and your interpretation isn't always the case. Mm-hmm. But then again, like you were saying, the general premise, though, like, yeah, especially if the the motive is stardom is to become a celebrity. I do think sometimes mm-hmm. not to overuse like a term like anointed or anything. I do think sometimes there's there's moments where someone just has an incredible gift from God when it comes to preaching and teaching unpacking the word and people just respond to it there's something to that and their mm-hmm. you know church blows up or whatever i don't think that that's necessarily the same thing as like what he's outlining someone who is like endlessly pursuing you know affirmation or approval which ironically is what we're teaching on this weekend at community <laughs> it's it's the whole <laughs> passage in the sermon on the mount where jesus says over and over again uh don't do these things in public for the approval of man they they've received the reward in full so like this feels like a front and center subject matter for me right now to be honest yeah. And and I guess I would I would say it this way for people out there. I think how do we get rid of the whole concept of celebrity? We're never going to. We don't. But but I would challenge you as an individual. Like, uh, are you drawn to, well, you know, think about the pastor of your church or the ones that you listen to or whatever. Like, what's the what what's drawing you to that person? What's the magnetism? And for us pastors, I think we just constantly have to be watching out for pride. Yeah. Uh, and the approval of man. And it doesn't mean that we're like, I'm going to be the jerk who gets disapproval all the time. But <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but but what am I searching after? And I think we have to constantly check our heart there. So I thought that was an important thing, especially just kind of the state of the church right now. And uh, you can tell us where you agree with it and where you disagree with it at our Facebook page, The Common Good uh, Radio Show. Coming up next, we're going to talk about all the craziness still going on with the election. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to dive back into the presidential election, and then we're going to talk about how to diffuse a tense conversation. You're listening to The Common Good. 
everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Hope everybody is doing well out there. Well, Ian, it feels like uh, we are in the midst of uh, the presidential election that will not end, even though <laughs> many people in our country have decided that it's over. Many people are still saying they're not. And that's kind of what we're going to dive into here. Uh, but that's the only way this could have gone right in 2020 is a really messy, really like, oh, this could turn really bad. That's the only way that this really could. We all should have seen this coming, right? I feel like a lot of people did, to be honest. I think a lot Actually, of people were anticipating. Right. Yeah, I, I think that this is not surprising for I would almost venture to guess the majority of people, I think. That's a good point. I did hear uh, about a million a million MAGA march going on in, in uh, D.C. this weekend. You going? You going? I, or are you I probably busy? Not, I, I am. This what this weekend? <laughs> check the old. Uh, no, I will. I will not check the calendar. <laughs> will there be pizza? <laughs> I'm sure, and masks. Uh, so okay, uh, Brian. there was <laughs> come on an, an come interesting on poll that came the out. Common good. The common it, good. Working for the common good, Brian. That's the aim of this show. It, I like pizza. I do like pizza. Oh, jeez. Interesting go. poll that came out that I think gets at this. And this came from this was all over the place. But at Politico, it says this 70 percent of Republicans don't think the election was free and fair. I want you to hear some of these numbers okay. uh, that have just changed over a week because I wanted to kind of dive in and not go who's right, who's wrong, what's crazy, what's not. But I want to say, what does this say about narratives and how people's what does this even teach us? Let me read a little bit of it. Okay. Uh, this is Catherine Kim at Politico. She said, after the presidential race was called for Joe Biden, Republicans trust in the election system plummeted while Democrats trust soared. Multiple news organizations announced Biden as the election winner on Saturday after four days of counting in several swing states. Following the news, 70 percent of Republicans now say they don't believe the 2020 election was free and fair. A stark rise from the 35 percent of Republican voters who held similar beliefs before the election. Meanwhile, trust in the election system grew for Democrats, many who took to the streets to celebrate Biden's win on Saturday. Ninety percent of Democrats now say the election was free and fair, up from 52 before November 3rd, who thought that it would be. So let me just stop <laughs> on those. What, what do you take from that, that both of them doubled just about either side in less than a week determined by what happened in the election? Not just are you surprised, but what's the takeaway there? What can we learn from that? Oh, gosh, I was not expecting that exact question. This to me, like if you were to do like a scan of the last two years of this show, I think one of the phrases that we've continued to come back to most often would either be confirmation bias or echo chambers, yes. right? I think the yeah. uh, the notion that I now retroactively have more faith in a system because of my the intended result or the desired result fell in my favor um, to me is that's they that's kissing cousin to confirmation bias. It's not quite the same, but it doesn't totally surprise me <laughs> that yeah. that would be that would be the response. I got what I was hoping for, therefore I now. Trust it more. Trust should probably be in air quotes. Um, and I didn't get what I was hoping for. And so my, you know, my distrust has grown. I think that's human nature to some degree. It, mm -hmm. it is concerning for sure. I, I would be curious to know if that's any different from decades past, or do we always see these sort of like massive 
spikes in trust and distrust based on based on who wins. I'd be curious to know that. Well, I do feel like what's different, and I'm just this is me shooting from the hip here. What feels different this time is it's not just anger over losing or disappointment over losing. It's that this was categorically unfair and rigged. And you're hearing words like I'm hearing them from friends of mine on Facebook or Twitter, right? Uh, Words like rigged and stolen and criminal. Uh, That's where this feels like it's gone to another level. And uh, use the word distrust in here. Distrust is highest in the places right now where where it was most contested, Wisconsin, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona. Uh, which also I think speaks a little bit to uh, to emotion and the role that emotion plays, right? If I can't, if my person didn't win, then clearly it was rigged. Uh, I, it, it reminds me, quite frankly, of conversations I have with my son when we're watching football uh, and he's constantly yelling about the referees. And I finally said to him the other day, I said, Jay, it's not always the referee's fault. Sometimes our team's yeah. not good or we lose. Right. And you just have to, it's not always the umpire's hmm. fault and it's not always their fault what is our role here and again like you just said there are some things that are somewhat have turned into like uh things that we talk about all the time but we got to do it again because these emotions and these posts and all this are still going on and marches and whatever else it might be what's our role as christians what's our role is the church as people are distrusting and and doing it it, when when things are getting kind of worse but not better here gosh i mean i I will first say, I think, and again, this is my own metrics applied to myself. So yeah, certainly those are skewed, but <laughs> I think I have a healthy distrust of m- much of what the government does or says, mm. or the media for that matter. Like I am by no means coming at this from the perspective, like <laughs> I saw it on CNN. I believe it wholeheartedly. Like that's, that is not sure uh, necessarily the position I'm coming from. I also do think it's worth this maybe isn't for everybody. Maybe this is just more for you and I. Like we have people who faithfully listen to this show on all sides of this disagreement. We have absolutely people far left, far right, undecided, somewhere in the middle. Like that's all that's all represented. And I don't want to for a moment, either as a host of the show or as a pastor or just as a human, uh, to to ever get to the place where you're you're demonizing or denigrating. So like those idiots believe blank or that moron bought blank. Like that's just as a rule of thumb going forward, regardless of what is discovered, what we find out. um, That's part of what I mean by Christians need to not only engage, but elevate political Mm -hmm. discourse. One of the reasons, one of the ways I think we can elevate it is by, you know, speaking truth to power and on, and honoring and upholding truth and being diligent in research. And we've talked about this before with, with what we share or don't share and all that, but also not stooping to the level of like, can you believe those idiots over there? Whichever side yeah. for you that is, by the way, because we realize that's happening in both directions. But I mean, I don't know. Like, Brian, how how would you feel if like two months from now we actually find out a whole bunch of scandals really were going on like would yeah. would you go back and eat your words like would this segment feel weird or you're like oh gosh maybe i am too trusting like how would that hit you if you know 60 days from now we find a bunch of other stuff out that's right i've i've told you from the beginning of us doing the show that i tend to be very trusting so like when you're like oh cnn said it i'm like well that's kind of how i am sometimes hmm. uh i've very clear i think the w- 
I think both the Trump uh, campaign and the Biden campaign, for that matter, have every right to go into every state and, and scrutinize what went on to go through the legal means. Uh, absolutely. It's just, again, another example of the of the inflamed rhetoric and the uh, the yelling of you cheated. No, you cheated. No, you're this. No, you're that. That is that is worrisome and tiring. I think they should exhaust every legal means possible and then. Uh, well, because then hopefully that leaves us with greater confidence in what the result is. Um, but to me, how it's playing out right now is just it's how it, it's how we went into the election. It's what you said at the very beginning of this segment. Like, no, I don't think many people are actually surprised by this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I, I sadly think that's true. The end of the CNN article here just says uh, it describes our country as wounded. And I think that's a good way to say it. I don't think it's broken. I'm not one of these people like, oh, this is just broken. But I do think there's a woundedness that that I hope that we as individuals and as the church can help in some way uh, help the healing of that. Uh, But, yeah, I I think you make a good point that just as we said before the election, let's not be people who demonize. Let's not do that after the election either. Uh, And hopefully there's coming a peaceful end to this at some point. And, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm hopeful that that's where this is heading. Mm -hmm. Um, You can find these at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, uh, Outreach Magazine wrote this, How to Diffuse a Tense Conversation. As somebody here who hates tense tense conversations, I look forward to this (laughs) uh, discussion. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. All right. We're going to talk about tense conversations. That, are, that already makes me sweat. I'm, I'm not <laughs> one who enjoys the tense conversation. I'm, a, I'm a vo- an avoider of tense conversations. But before we jump into that, uh, holidays. So the big one today is Veterans Day. That's the, that's the important one, the serious one. But are there any silly, strange holidays today, Ian? Well, there's only one under the category of weird, which is surprising, at least per this website. I don't know. I feel like I see people posting different holidays all over Facebook that aren't on this list. I don't know. I don't know where. Who's the gatekeeper? Like who's controlling yeah, whether or not yes. these are official? There's um, there's a couple of other. This one, uh, it's November holiday is what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Celebrating all November holidays. The holiday name, November holiday. The holiday location is. Mayotte and the holiday type is optional holiday. <laughs> <laughs> That's the weirdest one you've ever read. <laughs> That's really bizarre, right? It gets weird. It's weird to read as well. Um, but the the fun one, the weird one here is this National Sunday Day. Like S-U-N-D-A-E as in like ice cream Sunday. Oh, right. I forgot. This is a uh, purely oral medium. Yes. Sunday as the ice cream. <laughs> I, I should have clarified. I'm reading it. So it's perfectly clear to me. Yes. Like <laughs> like an ice cream Sunday. <laughs> Oh, I will. Uh, I will uh, do my best to celebrate that one today because I love a good ice cream Sunday. Really? So. But I mean, nothing. Nothing says ice cream like a nice forty-three degree day in November, right? <laughs> I can get past that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. I will get past that. Uh, all right. So, Outreach Magazine: How to Diffuse a Tense Conversation. Before we jump into what they say, I I joked about it, but I'm just, you know, part of the show is Ian and I letting you guys get to know us a little bit. I am a absolutely card carrying conflict avoidance person and not even like, Oh, you know, avoiding the conflict because it's helpful. No, no, I just don't like it. And so I do tense conversations very poorly. 
my wife and I, when we were in premarital counseling before we got married, our premarital counselor looked at us and looked at me and said, Brian, one of the issues you are going to have is not saying what's on your mind because you don't want to cause a problem. Mm. <laughs> and was he right? Yeah. Was he right? She she was uh, oh, she absolutely was right. correct. And I still hear her voice 20 years later when I'm like, should I say this? Shouldn't I say this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have gotten better by the nature of being older, but also by the nature of my job at having them. But they certainly cause me a lot of stress and and angst. How about you? Do you? It's weird to say these come natural for some people, but they do come naturally for some people. So uh, how do you do when a conversation is tense and you know that kind of going in? Yeah, I'm probably somewhere in the middle, not to, to keep reverting back to Enneagram, but um, Enneagram 3, 7, and 8 are in what they call the aggressive triad. So I'm a, I'm a three. Now an eight, an eight probably outright enjoys conflict. Like it invigorates them. Like they, that's how you like get things done and shake things up. Um, I'm not there for sure, but I do think being a three, uh, coming from a, a big, loud Irish family. And like you were saying, you know, getting a little older and, um, serving in the church and having positions Mm -hmm. of leadership, you know, you, that, that is sort of something you have to just learn get better at uh i yeah i wouldn't say that i love it but i'm not as spooked by it or avoidant there is still certainly depending on the weight and gravity of the conversation that needs to happen yep. you know the the butterflies they're like oh man here we go and sometimes that depends on you know <laughs> the person that you need to have the conversation with your relational equity with that person or how aggressive they are so yeah i'm 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 above average but certainly not in the category of like Oh man, I love it. I'm amped by it and uh, can't wait for the next conflict. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And so this, this uh, outreach magazine article begins with an, an important differentiation between conversation. And they say a conversation seeks understanding, whereas debate requires a winner and a loser, someone to be right, someone to be mm-hmm. wrong. Uh, and so this is about a conversation. And so it says uh, later on, The author says it's difficult for a conversation to be productive or end well when one or both persons don't listen. They're not interested in another view and simply want to drive their agenda. I want to offer what can be a better way to approach a tense conversation, especially one that you weren't expecting. So that gets us all the way to seven helpful guidelines to handle a tension-filled conversation. Why don't you take the first one? I would love to. Number one, the moment you see the heat is escalating, ask if they want a conversation or a debate, which mm. don't you feel like that could potentially escalate it faster? Like if, some, <laughs> if you didn't ask it correctly, like, do you want a conversation yeah. or a debate? Like if you said yeah. it was some sass. Anyway, as soon as you realize that the conversation is quickly escalating into a heated debate, stop the person and kindly ask them if they're interested in a conversation or a debate. This typically gets their attention for at least long enough for me to explain the difference. Then calmly say, I'd love to have a conversation with you, but if you want a heated debate where one of us loses and one wins, I'm going to pass. My willingness to walk away from an unproductive argument is not a fear of conflict. It's about my passion for being productive and redemptive. I, I think that's actually not a bad idea. Yeah, go into it. Be like, Do you want a conversation or a debate? Because I'm ready for either. <laughs> yeah, yeah with, like you're wearing your brass knuckles out or whatever. Yeah. That's probably not ideal. Your choice. Your choice. Number two. <laughs> Do not allow yourself to be taken hostage on a trip you don't want to take. Hmm. Just because someone agrees to a conversation doesn't mean it won't become an intense debate. This doesn't suggest that any intensity at all is inappropriate. Some tension is part of a complicated 
uh, conversation, but there's a difference between respectful intensity and someone simply dismissing what you have to say to make a point. This is the common problem in many marriages. When a mm. conversation is fueled by anger, no one wins. Don't let right. yourself get sucked in. There's no reason you need to allow the conversation to be hijacked to a one-sided debate filled with interruptions and rising intensity. That's a good one. I like the the imagery, too, of like being taken hostage. That, that certainly mm-hmm. describes conversations I think we've all had. And we're obviously yeah. not going to get to all seven of these, but I, nope. I would encourage you to go read these because they're really good. Uh, number three, model the behavior you want to experience. Take the lead in any tension-filled conversation by setting the example for dignity and respect. Again, I'm not suggesting there must be no heat whatsoever. That's not realistic. I would add exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. <laughs> that if the goal is like, I don't want to have conflict with anybody ever, like right. live, live in the mountains because it's not, you know, it's not possible. But he goes on to say, uh, we're all human and passion can kick in, but that is different than making it a making it personal in nature or even intentionally attacking the person. Three tip, uh, three tips of behavior to model genuine listening, no interrupting and body language matters. The majority of communication mm-hmm. is physical, which you and I have talked about is part of what makes uh, purely digital reality or predominantly yes. digital reality right now so difficult as we can't read all of those nonverbal cues that we we normally could, you know, a year ago. So I think I think that's, that's right. a good one. Number four, make your goal understanding and growth. That's good. One of the best ways to cool off a hot conversation is to show that you care about the person, even if you disagree with what you're saying. They're saying your willingness to set pride aside is a great example that can go a long way to having a healthy and productive conversation, even with a sensitive subject. All right, three more. Go ahead to this next one. Do you want me to just hit all three of them or what should we do? Yeah. Yeah, why don't you just hit all three? I'll just, I'll just read the headlines here. Master the use of questions rather than declarations of truth. This works both in arguments, by the way, and also I think it's it's the best way to, like, interview people. Like, that yes. took us a little while to learn, but just at, learning to ask good questions, I think, is part of it. Uh, number six, try to discover if something deeper is bothering the person. Again, I would add the caveat. The, I don't know that the primary aim should be to psychoanalyze them. But it, it is worth asking, like, oh, man, I wonder if something else is going on that's, like, leading them to be, you know, so ornery. And then seven, extend grace and peace and don't let it end in anger. Again, that is so much easier said than done. But those are right. I, those I thought for sure I might want to push back on on more of these. That's a Good. pretty solid list, man. It is. We have that up at our Facebook page. Again, whether you like hard conversations or you're like me who just, you know, despises them, uh, we're all going to need to have them. <laughs> at points. And so I found this to be a helpful list, how to diffuse a tense conversation. Well, coming up next, uh, a video was floating around the other day of some old uh, uh, leadership uh, advice that Kobe Bryant gave to another basketball player that I found really interesting. We're going to listen to it next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us again today. Hope you're having a great Wednesday. Uh, all right, so Kobe Bryant, and you and I were just talking off air. Kobe Bryant, I, it's it's so hard to believe that he died this year in 2020 because right. right. so much has happened, but uh, he died at the end of January in that tragic helicopter crash along with his daughter and I believe seven other people. Uh, oh, and And since then... Or even before then, there's so much that's come out about Kobe Bryant, um, about just his uh, kind of his leadership uh, style, but also he just he got leadership. And what's really interesting is that if you read any of the books, 
Kobe Bryant for the first half of his career was an awful leader. Like that's what he was known yeah. for, <laughs> like right. not being a good teammate, all sorts of stuff. And then and he, t- he touches on it in the clip we're going to listen to here. Uh, everything kind of changed when they lost uh, the NBA finals in 09 to, I believe the Boston Celtics or 08. Uh, and, and in this clip, Kobe's doing an interview and he's talking about leadership, specifically what he's told Kyrie Irving. That's a younger basketball player still in the league with now with the Brooklyn Nets. And Kobe had kind of taken Kyrie Irving under his wing. And he was talking about his leadership advice to Kyrie Irving. What's the next step? And, and as I heard this, Ian, and this is why I wanted to play this, is because I feel like this isn't just about basketball leadership. This is about what he gets at are some things about all leadership, church leadership, business leadership. You can even kind of take some parallels to families, all sorts of different things. So uh, with that as the backdrop, let's listen to what Kobe Bryant had to say about leadership and Kyrie Irving. It's about a minute long, and then we'll reflect on it. The, the next move for him is figuring out how to get the most out of the pieces around him. That's really hard, mm-hmm. right? And understanding how do you find a, an emotional connection with each player, figure out what their fears are, mm-hmm. and help turn those fears into strengths. And to do that, you have to put time in. And I don't mean time in the gym. I mean time listening, breakfast, lunch, dinner, talking to guys, listening to what they're saying. When did that happen for you? After we lost to the Celtics. You know, after we lost to the Celtics, because Michael told me the same thing. He said, listen, you have all the individual tools. Now you got to figure out how to connect with each one of those guys and bring the best out of those guys. It's not about just passing them the ball and mm-hmm. saying that's what makes guys better. That's not it. You have to figure out how to touch the right buttons to bring to make them want to be the best version of themselves. All right. On one hand, it's just kind of still spooky and weird to hear Kobe's voice. But uh, what did you think? Uh, I, I found that pretty fascinating what he had to say there about leadership and his own kind of style there. I, and I feel like I bring it back to this a lot. But often when I hear interviews like this, I think, oh, that's a lot of what Dave Ferguson is getting after in Hero Maker. Like there's just Isn't echoes right? of a lot of the set. Yeah, I really think so. I'll be honest, the first thing that stood out to me was how rare it often is to hear people, maybe especially in like sports leadership, talk about emotional connection. You know, it feels like we talk about that a lot in like the, you know, what do we call them? Like the soft skills, you know, like in church world, we're sort of uh, stereotypically known as like maybe being a little more in tune with some of those soft skills. But in sports and Wall Street and corporate USA you know, emotional connection isn't necessarily the highest of the list, but he talks about how significant that is and, and the time that it takes, right? Like the, and, and he's, he makes a moment to specify, and I'm not just talking time in the gym, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you can tell he's sort of going after some of like the presupposed, like, I know what you're thinking that it's just about, you know, skill improvement, which is the easiest thing to like latch onto or identify and he kind of flips the script a little bit and is like, man, if you're not taking time to actually know your teammates and he specifically hones in on fear, like what fears they have or what what motivates them. What was the example he gave? He's like, it's not just about, oh, passing them the ball. And that's what leadership that's is. Right. No, if, if you don't if you don't know what makes them take in a way to like bring them together as a part of a cohesive whole and. I don't know, man. It, it's I know that it was just a minute clip and somebody might be poking all sorts of holes in it, but I I it it struck me as a a really mature definition of leadership where it feels like oftentimes it can be easy to kind of latch on to the the real rah-rah picture, but it's also kind of vapid. Like it's just sort of, you know, 
cotton candy. You're like, well, that's, mm-hmm. there's not much to that. Like what he was saying, I thought had some real depth and I, I appreciated it. Yeah. And those of you, uh, you might be wondering when he was talking at late later in that interview, he said uh, near the end of it, he said, uh, Michael told me that that's Michael Jordan. Right. And so there's, right. you know, there, there's kind of that Michael Jordan taught this to Kobe. Now Kobe's wanting to pass this on. There's this uh, working down through the way you brought up Dave Ferguson's hero maker and that concept. Uh, and Kobe Bryant here talking about taking time and getting them, finding out what other people need. And it takes time, take them to breakfast, to lunch, to dinner, all this stuff. Uh, talk about how actual, and again, this gets back to Dave's hero maker. Talk about how real genuine leadership and effective leadership isn't about the leader at all, right? And it's about who you're bringing along. I know that's deep in the core of your guys' organization over at Community, mm-hmm. but uh, talk about uh, the people out there might be like, I don't get that. Leaders are the, you get people to do what you want them to do, right? Like that's the goal. Uh, as opposed to uh, this kind of the leader just kind of birthing something and bringing along the people. Talk about that concept from Hero Maker and also what Kobe had to say here. Yeah, I mean, the uh, so the five practices that Dave and, and Warren outline in Hero Maker is uh, multiplication thinking, permission giving, uh, disciple multiplying, gift activating, and kingdom building. And, you know, they obviously go and unpack all of those in much greater detail in the book. But you'll you'll notice that all five of those have to do with, like, other people. Like, how am I, how am I giving permission away to an apprentice that I've been raising up? Or how am I activating the gifts in other people, how am I, how am I, how am I working to, to multiply disciple, you know, like that kind of stuff to me is, is so important and so easy to forget when you get solely internally focused on like, I mean, even the question, how do I become the best leader that on the mm-hmm. surface seems admirable, but that's still a pretty self-centered question. Like what the, right. the aim then is still, you know, that's Maslow's hierarchy. That's like self-actualization. I want at the end of my life to have, led the best out of anybody, you know, that's still about you and your, and your legacy. And part of what I think David Warren so wonderfully get after is like, that's not ultimately, not only is it not the path to greatness, it's not the way of Jesus. You know, there's this very upside down way that Jesus talks about, you know, you want to be great, be last. You want to be first, you know, those types of like backwards uh, paradigms can become road to us because we learned them in Sunday school, but in leadership, it, they're really challenging. Like, how am I giving permission to someone when I could probably do it better myself? How do I think in terms of multiplication, not just growing my church or my organization bigger and bigger and bigger? Those, yeah. I think those questions are really challenging questions. Yeah, and the irony is that that's probably the best way to grow your organization healthier and bigger course, and to have right. people be loyal right. to you. That's right. Uh, you know, when you do it the other way, the people start fleeing, right? They're going to move on to the next thing where someone builds into them. I would... Uh, I'm sitting in my bedroom looking at my bookshelf here and I see Dave Ferguson's Hero Maker right there. I would, if you have any sort of leadership or just interest in this, uh, read that book. It's really, yeah. really good. And it will convict you because it, it gets at that backwardness that Jesus often talks about of what the role of the leader is. So go give this a listen. I found this to be really powerful. Kobe Bryant gone way too soon. But this uh, this perspective on leadership from the basketball court. Uh, I think plays out churches, businesses, all sorts of places. Go find that at our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. Well, uh, we're going to end the show next with a column by a guy from your neck of the woods there in Detroit, Mitch Album, uh, talking about Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of what's going on in our nation right now. We're going to end that way next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined by Ian Simpkins. Glad you've joined us today. Uh, a writer that I've always enjoyed, and you were just saying how much you enjoyed it. This your, uh, from your old stomping grounds right here in, Detro- uh, in, in Michigan, from the Detroit Free Press, Mitch Album. Uh, people might be like, oh, that name sounds familiar. Tuesdays with Maury, bunch of other books, that's Mitch Album. Uh, but he got his start as a sports columnist. Uh, and still writes at the Detroit Free Press, not so much about sports anymore. But he wrote this actually a day or two before the election. But I found it to be really powerful and, and a good way to end the show. Uh, Mitch Album, uh, the, the headline says this, election will be meaningless if we don't change our ways. It's kind of long. We won't be able to read the whole thing. But why don't you get us into it a little bit? I would love to read just a little bit. Do you think, is Tuesdays with Maury a book that most people are aware of? Uh, I, I think so. Right? I can never tell. Movie. Like, being, yeah, being from that area, though, sometimes I can never tell. Like, is this a globally recognized thing, or is it just because I live in this part of the country? But no, Tuesdays with Maury was global for yeah. sure. Okay, all right. Well, let me. Uh, why don't I start from the beginning again? Did you? Uh, you mentioned this was written before the election, right? So that's I probably. Yep, yep. That's probably worth uh, mentioning. So, my editors asked if I planned to write about the election, and I said yes. Perhaps they hoped I would pen something about the need to vote, a topic I've tackled before. But that seems unnecessary. Look at how many people have already voted. We all know the stakes in 2020. At this point, another column on why you should vote would be like bringing an extra trumpet to the walls of Jericho. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To be honest, I'm less concerned with what we do Tuesday than what we do Wednesday, Thursday, and every day thereafter. My biggest fear isn't who sits in the Oval Office come January. If the rest of us keep conducting ourselves the way we have been the last six months, it won't make a difference. Uh, We have all been behaving badly. I don't mean every single American citizen, but I do mean the wide swath of us in all the states and in all walks of public life, politics, media, business, entertainment. We dog each other. We point fingers. We fight over candidates, judges, medical experts, masks. Almost always these days, exaggeration is chosen over under uh, over understatement. Oh, that's interesting. I like the way that reads. Almost mm-hmm. always these days, exaggeration is chosen over understatement. Anger over calm, mean over kind. We have more than taken sides in America. We have tunneled moats in the name of our way. We have demeaned, denigrated, destroyed. We've lost friends, alienated families, split our communities by lawn signs. We have hurt one another emotionally and even sometimes physically. Yet far from looking at our guilty hands in regret, we continue to make fists and shake them across the great divide. Is this who we want to be? What do you think of that setup, by the way? Do you think he's uh, I think it is spot on. beautiful, and I think yeah. it couldn't be more spot on before the election and after the election. What I really appreciate about what he does in this and why I wanted to end with this, and we'll read some more of it, was uh, it wasn't like, hey, it's, it's uh, Trump's fault. Hey, it's Biden's fault. They, everyone's right. got some blame in this, but he says, no, no, I'm less concerned about them and more concerned about us. I'm more right. concerned with who we've become and what we've done. And you're like, oh, that kind of hurts, right? Like, it's easier to blame somebody else. And I, I really, I really resonate with what he's saying here. So what do you, what do you think about, like, when you hear that, what does that make you feel? Like, man, I want to fill in the blank or we need to fill in the, like, what does that do? What is his, because a lot of times I think people hear a premise like that and they, they just spiral further into despondency. They're like, well, we're screwed. You know what I mean? Like, what, what does that kind of picture as he paints it do for you? Uh, it makes me it reminds me that I want to be 
as an individual, as a family, as a church, I want to be a unifier and a healer, right? I don't want to mm. make everything go away and pretend. Uh, but I, I want to be part of the solution. I want this show to be part of the solution. I want the, the limited interactions I have with people to be part of the solution and not add to the problem. And so sometimes that requires what we talked about a couple of segments ago, some tense conversations. Right. Uh, and sometimes it requires listening, like we talked to about earlier in the show as well. Uh, but, but it, it is a reminder of like, yeah, I can shake my fist at so-and-so they're the problem. Why we are broken. They're the problem. Why we're divided. And maybe they are, but maybe I am too. And, mm. uh, I'm not willing to look into the mirror. And so I do think that's a takeaway for me going, okay, yeah. uh, don't just blame everybody else for the problems you see around you. Right. Well, I like, I like what he does next too. He says, let me start in my own backyard, the media. I used to be so proud of this business. I would defend it to any critic. I'd point to the need for an independent press as the only thing standing between big power and big money running rampant over the citizenry. Now it seems like we're running alongside them. Some of us are even carrying their banners. Like I, and then the next section is called a desert of objectivity. Like I, I appreciate his willingness to say, this is my medium. Like this has been my business and work, you know, for a long time. And, and to have, recognize that shift where it seems like what he's implying is like, no, we used to be, you know, impartial. We used to be a little more objective. And now it feels like though, not only has the divide widened, but we're, you know, in some cases we're the ones carrying the, the banners. I, I think that's a pretty uh, convicting, but also retro. What's the word I'm looking for? That's a, he's, he's willing to like look inside his own involvement. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. He, and he does some stuff. I'd encourage you to read it. If you want to see it, he goes through, uh, the titles of some op-eds at the New York Times leading up to the election and how just slanted they were. And then he does the same thing with like the Wall Street Journal and how slanted they are the other way. And he's like, do you understand why we are like this? Mm. Uh, and so it's really interesting. And then later on, uh, under partisan grenades, he says, of course, we have plenty of inspiration from the politicians, too. Uh, you could start with the president. There's no question his preening, his prevaric prevarication. Uh, his fast and loose with the facts uh, approach and his infatuation with putting people down is any measure uh, bad behavior. But if you think that makes his opponents holy, you're not being fair. Joe Biden brags about his transparency, uh, but he barked, no, they don't. When a reporter asked if the public had a right to know his stance on the Supreme Court. So mm. album saying, hey, we've got and I know there's people out there going, oh, it's not even it's not even. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that our uh, first he's saying. Our press has a problem. And then he's saying uh, we all have a problem. Our press has a problem. Our politics has a problem. Uh, and he's just kind of wanting to say, hey, we all have a problem and we've got to act better. Uh, we've got to do better. Hmm. I like the way he ends this, too. And it's interesting having you know, written this before the election. He said a recent poll showed three out of four Americans are concerned about violence on Election Day, which is so sobering. The city stores are being boarded up. Security is being strengthened near expensive properties. Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills is literally shutting itself down Tuesday and Wednesday. Violence when we vote. Does that sound like America or a revolution in some small war-torn country halfway around the world? We are stressed, locked down, haunted by a common enemy virus that should have united us, but instead has divided us further. And the truth is, our future won't be determined by who we choose to lead us this week. It will be determined by how we act after we do. An American president, when he wakes up, doesn't step off a cloud. He is a representative, nothing more. What will he represent? What will we represent? 
Think about the friends we've lost this election season, the neighbors we've alienated. Who will we be on Wednesday, Thursday, and beyond? I know this. If the winners gloat and the losers threaten, we won't be any better than we've been the last six months. And does anyone really want the country of the last six months to be the country of the next four years? There's that the is the question. That's a, he's a, he's a, a good writer, Fabulous. man. That is that is really well said. Fabulous. So I thought that was a good way to end here because yeah. it puts the onus back on us and says, uh, what role do we have and what's going on? And that question is almost haunting. Do we really want the country yeah. of the last six months to be the country of the next four years? And there's the answers to that. If the answer is no, then the answer is then, then we have to look inside. And so a really great article there, Mitch Album, the Detroit Free Press. We've got that up at our Facebook page. If you missed any of the show today, uh, go find the podcast and subscribe, rate, and review. And then join us tomorrow also from 4 until 6. We hope you have a great night. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.